Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome, everybody, and welcome to a virtual program of the Commonwealth Club program. My name is Matthew Zapruder, and I'm a poet and an associate professor at St. Mary's College in the San Francisco Bay Area. Today's program kicks off a special series of programs created through a partnership between the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley and the Commonwealth Club. The focus of the series is catastrophe and the essential role that stories and storytelling play in helping us face and survive catastrophes. The goal is to share knowledge and renew hope by discussing literary accounts of catastrophic change throughout history. Um, interestingly, this program series was in development before the coronavirus crisis began, um, and we were we had many thoughts about what constituted our current state of catastrophe, which have all radically altered. So we'll have lots to talk about, unfortunately, unfortunately. So I'm speaking to you from the San Francisco Bay Area, which was one of the first regions in the country to go into lockdown. Uh, we've been, most of us have been inside for several weeks on pretty severe social distancing. And this new series of programs seeks to remind us that this is not the first time that human societies have faced catastrophic collapse. And today's program focuses on the book of Exodus, And it seems like a great time to look uh, and listen to this story about the collapse of Pharaoh's empire and the rise of Israel and uh, the introduction of the character of Moses. And it's a great time to do that. It stays before the Jewish holiday of Passover, the focus of which is based on this story. And joining me today for this conversation, I'm really honored and pleased to have Professor Ronald Hendel. He's the Norma and Sam Dabby Professor of Hebrew Bible and Jewish Studies at UC Berkeley. He's the author of many books and articles on the religion, literature, and history of the Hebrew Bible. Um, He's so knowledgeable and thoughtful, and I'm just so pleased to be in conversation with him. Mostly it's going to be me asking him questions. Um, Welcome again, everyone. And hey, Ron, how are you doing? Hey, Matthew. Good. How are you doing? Good. We were just talking about the fact that uh, the last time we saw each other was in a bar in Oakland. Um, That was way more fun than this. Was that like a thousand years ago or something? That was like a thousand years ago. Now I'm hunched over in my office at home with a blanket in front of me looking at my son's iPhone. (laughs) This is really weird. If that isn't the contemporary condition, I don't know what is, Ron. (laughs) Well, this is a funny place to talk about catastrophe and storytelling. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems that we're in... We're in a state of catastrophe, so we should tell some stories. And uh, this week, it seems like the Exodus is a good story to tell. Yeah, I had, you know, I was familiar, of course, with Exodus in that sort of school schoolboy way or school child way. I have a particular connection with it because my, um, as I mentioned to you when we met up in person, my my uh, bar mitzvah Torah portion was Exodus chapter four, um, when Moses uh, protests that he is not the right person to deliver the message to the Pharaoh and, and, and various miracles are made to be performed. Um, and we'll, maybe we'll get into that, but I didn't, I can't say that I was, you know, that I remembered much of it. So I reread it before our meeting and then I've been rereading it again this week during, um, during this kind of awful time that we're in. Um, and it is indeed pertinent. Uh, what, what jumps out at you initially when we, when we talk about the pertinence of this story? Yeah, well, it seems to me that uh, when there's a, plague circulating outside it's not that much of a stretch to see the uh, story of the plagues in, in the exodus as being relevant and for the for the general topic that we're talking about 
the, the, the relationship between catastrophe and storytelling. I think one of the things I'd like to emphasize, and I know you, you like this as well, is that um, one of the things that people do in the face of catastrophe is at least ultimately they turn that catastrophe into a story. They tell stories about the catastrophe. They, they, they make catastrophe, which can seem like such a random thing, by placing it into a story, it somehow makes sense of the catastrophe. And in so doing, it makes sense of life in the light of catastrophe. So that's one of the things that I would emphasize the um, story of Exodus does. The catastrophe is uh, this memory of 400 years of Egyptian bondage, of being slaves to Pharaoh. Uh, and this story tells about the catastrophe and, uh, and about the uh, miraculous survival and the, the miraculous defeat of the enemy and uh, the, the turning of catastrophe into a new opening to create a, a new people, a new era of history, a new sense of purpose and identity. So ideally, I would say that's what people tend to do with catastrophe, or at least after the catastrophe is over, to retrospectively make sense of it. Hopefully, that's something that we'll be able to do in the near future. Yeah. Um, well, a few things that you say um, immediately, you know, there's a few things about what you say that immediately jump out at me. One is, you know, one of the most important examples of this use of the book of Exodus in particular is a solace or an explanation for tragedy it has to do with um, the African-American experience of slavery. Um, you know, the use of that story in various ways to make sense of something that cannot be made sense of, I don't think. Um, yes, well, I, I totally agree. And this is something that I think shows you the power of storytelling in the face of catastrophe. So the, the, the African American, uh, slave, uh, the, the songs that they would sing, uh, go down Moses. There was a kind of, it, 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 it made a story that had a coherent ending. That is to say, Pharaoh uh, is defeated, slavery ends, uh, people are released from bondage into freedom. Uh, so even in the midst of the catastrophe, they could see the end of the story by placing that frame of the Exodus story over their own sufferings. So it, so stories give hope. It gives you an orientation towards the future. It gives you a sense of solidarity with other people who are experiencing that catastrophe. In the case of uh, African-American slaves, it also provided them a, with a common language to communicate their their critique of slavery, their condemnation of slavery, and their hope for redemption in a language that the slave masters could not object to. Mm -hmm. because it was the Bible. Mm. So there's, there's a way in which the story uh, expresses a kind of hidden critique of their own oppressors that the oppressors couldn't really object to. So it was a very, it was, it was a very effective kind of story to tell at that time because they'd say, well, we're just reading the Bible, praising the Lord. One thing that jumped out at me this, in this reading, um, which is, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the long series of instructions that, uh, that the Lord gives to, um, Moses to give to the people and, 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 you know, throughout the book in, uh, in, uh, 
chapter 21, verse 16, there's an express prohibition of slavery, um, which is interesting uh, given the uh, religiosity of the slave owners. Um, one, one wonders how they reconcile that particular verse with their behavior. Good question. You're, you're, you're studying well. <laughs> yeah, Padawan learner. Yeah. Fifth read, my fifth reading of the Exodus. I'm finally yeah. interesting. No, one of the one of the very interesting things, and this is in the ancient world where slavery was a, an institution that people didn't question, but because of this memory of having been slaves to Pharaoh and the you know the in achieving redemption from slavery, there's a there's a strong ethical component where um, yeah, slave laws are much more. Uh, liberalized. They're not eliminated altogether, but they're very much liberalized. And secondly, there's a sense of compassion for the foreigner. This is also, I think, something that uh, is worth emphasizing in in terms of our contemporary situation. That there's a the recollection is that Israel, Israel, the people of Israel were strangers in a strange land. They were resident aliens oh, in Egypt. When they, when, they, when they first went down at the end of Genesis, uh, when they go down to Egypt, and then the Pharaoh enslaved them. But there's a strong sense in which the resident alien in Israelite society uh, is subjected to um, the rights and responsibilities the regular citizens get. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a respect for the foreigner and a respect for the resident alien. Uh, they're they're even subject to the uh, laws of the Sabbath that they're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. They get a vacation as well. Mm-hmm. So this is something that I think is a very strong part of what I would call Exodus ethics, and that is that you treat the foreigner with respect, and they are part of your community. They're not an other. They're not an enemy. They're not an outside uh, stain. But they are they are people that you um, support because you were yourself a, a stranger, a foreigner in a strange land. Mm-hmm. Just an aside, but um, you know, I have this experience whenever I reread the Bible of um, coming across all these phrases that that you know were you know have have lived in my brain for a long time, and I either didn't know or for, for had forgotten that they were. Um, that they were from the Bible. And of course, Stranger in a Strange Land is the title of a Robert Heinlein book. Um, I was a science fiction nerd. I know you're going to find this hard to believe, Ron, but I was a kind of a science fiction nerd when I was a kid. And, and, uh, you know, I was a big Robert Heinlein fan. And I remember reading that book. And of course, it, you know, read now, read, I was like, oh, right. That's where that's from, you know. Stranger. Yeah. Mo- Moses said it before Robert Heinlein. <laughs> Um, I want to slightly complicate our, our thinking about storytelling and historical memory. Um, I know that's an area of, of, of scholarly um, interest for you. Um, and, and maybe try to link it a little bit to our current situation. Um, it is true that stories help us make sense of what's happened and can comfort us for better and for worse. Um, in, in Exodus, the odd thing about, one of the many odd things about Exodus is that the entire story of the liberation of the Jews is stage managed by um, Yahweh. Um, there is, it is said, I don't know how many times you would know the exact number that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
over and over. Yeah. And so Moses goes, he says, X, Y, X thing is going to happen if you don't let my people go. Then the Lord hardens the Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh says no, and X thing happens. Y thing happens, Z thing happens. And down to the ho- most horrible thing of all happening, which is the, the, um, the, the killing of the firstborn sons. And, um, it's, uh, we discussed this when we met in person, but this idea that the story is being constructed by Yahweh for a future purpose. And, um, it's disconcerting and even disturbing to think about, um, that through the lens of human suffering, um, that is, that, you know, that the Egyptian people, you know, experience be for the sake of a story that is going to be needed by God or by Moses or by the Israelites. Um, and I wonder if you have thoughts about that. And, and the reason, one of the reasons, that, you know, on this most recent rereading is I was just thinking about, of course, how important stories are in our current, um, environment. I mean, people are, are always telling stories and those stories have, a means to an end and um it's curious to think about how actively people are manufacturing certain stories in order to um, achieve some purpose for better and for worse so that's one thing i wanted to dig into because i think that does make more complicated our understanding of what of the role of storytelling in 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 nation formation and identity and how that might connect with our current situation Good. That's a, that's a terrific, that's a terrific question. And, and I could go on for this all day long. So cut me off when I'm, when I'm getting redundant, but um, there's two ways that I would kind of sculpt an approach to that question. One is the way this works within the Exodus story itself. And the other is that the way this works in the context of ancient Israelite history Okay, so stories aren't necessarily the same as history, as what really happened. In fact, they never are. Just by the fact of placing something in a story frame with a beginning and a middle and an end and a complication and a resolution, you are sculpting the shape of time and causality and shaping the protagonists and antagonists. So stories are always fictive, at least in their general structure. I mean, life doesn't, you know, events don't really have a fixed beginning, middle, and end, but stories do. So there's always a a construct going on. Now, in the actual history, most of the things that we read about in the Exodus story probably didn't happen. Okay, so when you're worried that the Egyptians are being are suffering all of these plagues and so forth, well, some of these things didn't really happen. I'm reminded of uh, one of my favorite Gershwin songs: uh, "The things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so." Mm-hmm. Okay, so we don't really have to worry about what the Egyptians' response was to the death of the firstborn son because these are story motifs. They didn't necessarily happen. So we, we can worry about fictive characters, but we don't have to worry about the real Egyptians. What, what seems to be the actual historical backdrop is that in ancient Canaan, in the period before Israel emerged as a nation, okay, and this is the way the story is being told. This is the ancestral story, 
before Israel emerged as a nation in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. In this pre-Israelite period, for roughly 400 years, the land of Canaan was part of the Egyptian empire. Now, what this means is that all of the people of Canaan were, according to the imperial ideology, slaves of Pharaoh. Okay, so so they were subjected to all sorts of harsh uh, taxation and conscription and forced labor and things like that in the land of Canaan. Mm-hmm. There were also, during the Egyptian Empire, many Canaanites were taken to be slaves in Egypt by military campaigns, by pharaohs, uh, sometimes by taxes. People would be uh, taxed by saying, send us X number of people each year. And also because of famines, people would sell their children uh, into slavery or people would go into debt and go into slavery. And, and all of these people were sucked into Egypt, which was the big imperial center of the time. So there were many, many thousands of Canaanites who had been taken into Egypt as slaves. Now, what happens after four, roughly 400 years is the Egyptian empire collapses. Okay, And one of the immediate... One of the uh, consequences of that collapse is the previous economic structure and political structures in Canaan collapsed, and you have the birth of these new societies, including the people of Israel. So this formation of the people of Israel is a direct consequence of the collapse of the Egyptian empire in Canaan. Probably some of the Canaanites who had been slaves in the land of Egypt also escaped, because they were, the fortresses, the border fortresses were no longer manned. So people could escape back to uh, their homeland. And so you, so you have a combination of a, a native people in Canaan joining this land, this people of Israel, who had been enslaved by Pharaoh for generations, even the ones who had never left Canaan. They were politically and legally slaves of Pharaoh. Plus, they're joined by some escaped slaves from Egypt. So somehow in the crystallization of this new people, this memory, and I think this is a legitimate, a genuine historical memory of having been slaves to Egypt, having been under the the heavy hand of Egyptian bondage, was a kind of unifying memory that created a sense of self, a, a sense of collective identity, and a sense that their community arose out of the defeat of Pharaoh and the defeat of Egypt, which naturally they would attribute to their God, Yahweh. So historically, this this memory of slavery is a kind of bonding agent uh, for, the, for the people. And the story of the, of the defeat of uh, Pharaoh by Yahweh is part of the story-making um, creativity <clears throat> that went along with this new identity and this new people. So the story itself, interestingly enough, presents itself as a collective memory, as a, a cultural memory, because it said over and over again, you shall tell your children about this story. Right. Well, I grew up, and I mean, and maybe you did too. I mean, I grew up, you know, every year getting the message that this is a story that our people had to remember, the Jewish people yes. had to remember, and this is what gives us um, kind of 
you know, unity or, or, or sense of, or a sense of historical memory, regardless of where we are and what's happened. And I mean, it does, it does kind of, again, maybe I'm in this sort of mood right now, but it does, it is a little bit disturbing that, that, nation formation or or identity formation is so closely connected with mm, let's say opposition that that, that, that that there's no that's very hard to imagine people i don't know for some reason i keep thinking of um the 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 well not for some reason i mean i keep thinking about the conflict between the need for um let's say collective action that we currently mm-hmm. Experiencing and have been for a long time. If you want to think about climate change or something smaller but extremely important, like the need for healthcare uh, in this country, think about that in opposition to these forces or these groups that immediately coalesce around a sense of oppression and and a need to identify themselves against this other force. I mean, I think that the people who who um, uh, oppose, you know collective sorts of action that we need in America often think of themselves as like the Israelites in the land of Egypt. I mean, probably literally even um, as being, you know, under Mm -hmm. the thumb of an oppressive force and having to unify and persevere and, and any, any form of resistance is, is acceptable because, you know, you're being, you're being harmed. Um, And so, so I know when I was reading Exodus this time, I guess I felt, I had this uncomfortable feeling that 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 there was somehow the story formation of it was was linked to some you know troubling. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right, and this is the dark side of the Exodus. The dark side is that it is an oppositional story. I mean, in a sense, every story has to be an oppositional story. You have to have good guys and bad guys, but because you have to have those, it creates a kind of dark distinction between us and them. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so there, so this is, this is the dark side. This is the painting of the enemy, whether the enemy is Egypt in, in um, the story of the plagues or what, or whether the enemy is the Canaanites uh, when they, when they have oh, escaped the from Amalekites. Egypt and they're mm-hmm. conquering the promised land. Or the Amalekites or the, or the, or the Amal- Amalekites. Amalekites uh, one, the, one of or the, even the people what, in what most disturbingly, even, you know, the people in, you know, after the golden calf incident, the Israelites themselves yes. were purged. Yes, um, so there's own. good guys and bad guys within the community. So there's yeah. all sorts of violence in the story. I don't mean to be negative about it. I just, I just, this maybe, maybe you know, it's tough in this current environment. I'm, tr- I'm looking for, you know, for 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 a different model of of um a different story, I guess. And you know, there's a lot about this story that is very moving. It is is about courage and perseverance and and I mean, the figure that I find, I mean, Moses is just such a um, complex and fascinating figure. And I was thinking, too, and I wanted to ask you about this, about how, to what extent you think our view of a leader is influenced by by Moses in the Exodus story. When I was reading this Exodus this time through, I was thinking, he sounds a lot like Lincoln. But then I was thinking, well, my idea of Lincoln is probably filtered through this story. Ah. You know, I mean, what do I really know about Lincoln? Only what I've read, of course, and what I've heard. So what the the, the way his story, you know, the flawed leader who, whose courage, is, you know, waxes and wanes, but but is ultimately has a good heart and kind of finds his way through, but a tragic figure who can't make it to the project. 
all that stuff. I mean, that, that kind of idea of a, of a hero is so, is so embedded in our cultural consciousness, I think. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And Moses is a, a real archetypal hero. It, it's hard to, it would be hard to find a major hero in Western civilization that isn't influenced by Moses mm. in one way or another. But certainly Abraham Lincoln, I mean, he, he was, you know, the father of the country. The, he was Father Abraham. Uh, he had a tragic death at the end, like Moses has a tragic death. Uh, he was filled with self-doubts at certain points, just as Moses is filled with self-doubts. Mm-hmm. There, there's a sense in which at certain points when the Israelites um, have this stiffness of neck and want to go back to Egypt because it's so hard to be wandering in the desert and, and so forth, Moses forces them to, to, to continue on this journey. In a sense, he forces them to be free against their own will. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense that Abraham Lincoln, you know, in, in our national story, did the same sort of thing. He forced people to be free, even if they were, were resistant or, or pull, pulling against him. So these are, these are heroic qualities that, that, yeah, where you can't really tell the difference between the biblical story and our national story. Well, and get close to how these stories function. And there's such an um, incredibly perceptive human truth about that, which is that if you want to achieve anything that's difficult, you are going to have to, um, uh, people are going to have resistance to it, even, and maybe yeah. especially your own people. There's no way that you can, that you can, the only way you can be a pleaser like Aaron and, and cave instantly and mm-hmm. build golden calf, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, that's, that's one way to handle conflict. But if you're a person of, you know, you, who has a, has a larger goal in mind, you're going to have to be, um, you're going to have to, um, take a lot of abuse. And, and yeah. it's really, I mean, that I, I can't, as I was reading this, that this time, I was just thinking so much about leadership. Um, I really think Exodus is a story about different types of leadership, um, and better and for better and for worse. And, and Moses is, you know, certainly far from a perfect leader. There's no doubt about it, but he, but he's pretty, he's got a lot of courage, I think, especially for someone who isn't maybe, he's gifted in certain ways, but he's not rhetorically gifted. You know, he's not a person who's gifted in that way. But uh, he, but even his self-doubts, I think, make him a more human, a more complicated leader. He's not just a cartoon. Character. I mean, what a, what a, what a contemporary uh, individual in a way, you know, like a, yeah. like, like a, um, We've got a couple of questions. Um, I, I, did, did you have you, uh, what, Ron? Did you have something you want to comment on about that, or I mean? About well, my- I was just going to say that you know the the need for leadership in the time of crisis is also something that has weird resonances with our situation today. You want someone like a Lincoln or a Moses who has self doubts, who who uh, has a complicated. Uh, personality who can who can be courageous in the face of opposition and it seems to me that in our world today we're, we're lacking that a lot yeah we're attracted to exactly the opposite of course because we're scared and that's a legitimate thing or, or yeah. not scared or maybe, maybe maybe um we've sent let, let's just say in a more neutral way so many of us sense have a deep sense in ourselves that it's that change is necessary so, so someone with conviction and someone with with uh with leadership skills you know is very attractive um mm-hmm. and and you know i i don't know i couldn't 
help but think of Obama on some level when I was reading. Honestly, <laughs> just to, um, but I'll, but maybe I'll read. Well, let, well, let me just add. Go ahead. Yeah. In, in the way that the Exodus story affects our national story, when Obama first became president, people were comparing him to the to Joshua. Uh-huh. That if that if Martin Luther King was our Moses, he was the Joshua. He was the successor. Huh. And this was this was language again of the African American church that huh. it resonated a lot with with what he was doing, putting into place the sorts of dreams that uh, the martyred Moses, who never made it into the promised land, mm. uh, was dreaming of. I mean, far be it for me to to you know. I mean, I say this with all humility, but. Obama strikes me as more more of a Moses figure in the sense of his 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 the way he took abuse from all sides for trying to lead people into larger yeah. roles. Although, um, but so so we've got a couple of questions. Um, okay, about poetic language, which I'm gonna put on hold for a second because that's I'm not even sure how to answer that, but maybe I'll ask it in a minute. But um, this one I think is one, Ron, that you I'm sure you would have a lot to say about. Um, here's the question. The mythic function of the story contrasts with dominant Western narratives. For example, mm-hmm. dream manifest destiny. Please talk about the Exodus myth as a challenge to contemporary stories, particularly with regard to catastrophe and crisis. Well, I'm not sure that, I mean, there's certainly ways that it contrasts, but it also informs, I mean, ideas of the American dream, you know, when the Puritans first came to to settle in this country, they saw themselves as being on a biblical mission to create a new promised land mm-hmm. in this new world, and they saw themselves as a new Israel. Uh, so there's a lot of ways in which many aspects of the American dream, and even the negative aspects, you know, the 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 uh, othering of the Native Americans and the you know stealing the land from them as if they were the Canaanites in the story or the Amalekites or something. Uh, there's many ways in which both for both good and evil, the biblical story of the Exodus and conquest, when you add that on, informs the American story of a manifest destiny, all, all these sorts of things. So there's a sense in which I would say to critique the American story is also to critique the biblical story. And, and and one of the nice things about the biblical story is that it's complicated enough so that you can see elements of critique already there, mm-hmm. such as the uh, love of the stranger. And, well, and I feel and, like one of, the, one of the main elements of critique that's in there is, um, you know, so much of Yahweh's, um, let's say, his, he doesn't attempt in any way to justify his commandments or his or his power through logic or, or through, through appeals to eth- larger ethical ideas. Um, he simply is, you know, the cloud of smoke or the, or the, or the fire on the mountain or whatever. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's that, this very theatrical, um, scary, patriarchal person. And the rules themselves might be laud, many of them might be laudable, but they're not, I don't, there's not, in my reading of Exodus, there's a lot of attempt to justify them. Uh, Moses, on the other hand, and I might be wrong about that, but Moses, on the other hand, appeals to God um, on the basis of logic and on the basis of of ethical considerations. Like he he's a he's a person who who argues 
with God and says, mm-hmm. you know, well, this is going to make you look bad. Or if you do it, yeah. this, or you, or if you, you said you were going to do this. And then if you do that, it's that, was that really fair? And blah, blah, blah. And look at them. They've been wandering in the desert. They've had a tough time, you know? So, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's a kind of human, uh, uh complicated human aspect to Moses again. That's very, that, that, that feels like there's an inner conflict in the story itself between those two, ways of looking at the world or those ways of like kind of trying to justify behavior, I guess. Well, I, I think that the, the, the conflict between Yahweh and Moses is very profound as, as you're pointing out that, that Moses argues with God about what's the right thing to do in this circumstance. What's the just thing to do? What's the ethical thing to do? And sometimes he convinces Yahweh to uh, shape up. And yeah. to not do what Yahweh was going to do. Or go off because, and calm down at least. Or at least calm down, take, <laughs> a, like, take, take a chill pill. Have a time out. <laughs> have a time out. But Moses is, is yeah. so focused on what the right thing is that he's able to prevail over God in his, in his, in these, in these moments. That, that Moses is kind of the rock that even God relies on. It just is quite remarkable. As an aside, another thing that's contemporary about the stories is that uh, Moses shows character development. I mean, he's, you know, he goes yeah. from this person who's not, who's, you know, so timid that he can't even imagine, well, not can't even imagine. I mean, it's a tough job to go in front of Pharaoh and say, let my people go. But he, he, he doesn't, you know, he's afraid to confront Pharaoh, understandably, to, to a person who's willing to confront God. I mean, that's a pretty, yeah. that's a pretty big, character development there and absolutely and it feels uh justified when you read the story you're like it's believable that he would have made this transition because he's been through all this stuff you know well there's something i want to ask you about that we talked about a little bit last time at the end of moses's life where is this where's this great tragic moment that he led the people to the to the verge of the promised land but he doesn't get to go there himself uh, and you described this, you, you talk about this very nicely in, in your book that I want to promote here called Why Poetry. <laughs> you talk about negative capability. I, I want you to expa- ex- explain to the audience what you mean by that in, in that moment at the end of Moses' life. Yeah, well, that, of course, occurs in Deuteronomy, as you all know, that that's right. That's that's not in Exodus, but the, but um, we can um, we can leave Exodus for a minute. Um well, it's still Moses. It's still Moses, still Moses' story. Um, yeah, well, negative capability is a concept that... Um, the poet John Keats um, formulated in a letter to his brothers. Uh, and basically he was thinking about Shakespeare and he was saying, he was trying to come up with a kind of idea about what makes a poetical, the poetical character, what makes a, a what, what, what's at the heart of poetry and poets and the poetic consciousness. And he talks about the ability to, you know, be, uh, you know, in contradiction, um, you know, without an irritable reaching after fact or reason. And, um, he, the, the, he, his point is, is that contradiction and conflict and the multiplicity, the multiple, multiple existences, simultaneous existence of, um, conflicting ideas is inherent to what makes a poem a poem, you know, and to be in that space and be able to clearly perceive that contradiction, which is at the heart of existence is, um, is, you know, at the heart of poetry and that Shakespeare had that ability to be in that place in his plays and in his poems. And I think about that moment of Moses, you know, standing there, you know, literally kind of at the edge and not making it and almost also sort of disappearing, melting away. Right. And he doesn't, I, cause I mean, there isn't really, 
specific, a lot of specific details about his death and there is, are there, I mean, I mean, like, so it's that to me seems like such a profound moment of negative capability of seeing, of seeing the promised land. You should go, you should deserve to go there and, and it's, it's right there for you and it can't be achieved. And that the feeling that I get in that, and when I contemplate that moment is one of negative capability, you know, like, like the, 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 that, that it's, somehow feels very wrong, but also somehow perfect that he wouldn't be able to get there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. You know, I think this, this, response, this response to the viewer's question about the poetry in the story, mm-hmm. I think there's some very powerful moments of literary resonance throughout the story. We've been talking about the, the personality and character of Moses, but I think that moment at the very end is just an amazing, it's an, it's an amazing point for the end of Moses. It's also the end of the Pentateuch. Yeah. Right. And it's this moment of tremendous expectation, but there's a kind of tragic quality to it as well, which is really remarkable. Yeah, and the end of, you know, the end is the beginning in a way. That's that that too. Yeah. It's like yeah. The, this whole thing is just the beginning of a story, you know, and here we are. And I mean that mm-hmm. does kind of in my more optimistic moments I do think about this current catastrophe and then you know, the catastrophe of climate change and you know, the catastrophe of our political system as being something that we must, we must work through together as a people mm. to get to the next thing. It's, it's, it can't, it couldn't have been any other way. I mean, I think this particular situation we're in definitely could have been another way had we had a competent, you know, uh, person running things and, and people who were paying attention. But the, in the larger sense, the, 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 the crisis that we're in is one that, that we have to go through as a country. And it's, it's a terrible thought and I, and I don't wish anything on anybody, but I feel like I do at my more optimistic moments think and hope that this is something we can work through. Well, in a sense, when, when everything is stripped away and you see things, you know, as they truly are, there's a way in which it can be, you know, not just a catastrophe, but it's also, as you say, the potential for a new beginning and of a new perception of the way that beginning could go. So this is, so am I using this right? That this, this, this could be a moment of negative capability for all of us. Well, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, it's, 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 I think in order to move forward, we probably need to have negative capability. We probably need to be able to keep in mind um, something about the simultaneously, something about the, uh, terrible unacceptability of certain types of behaviors and of and of people who hold them along with the simultaneous idea that they are our brothers and sisters and that we need to somehow find a way to be together on this because mm-hmm. otherwise we'll just be paralyzed in constant conflict um, well again to 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 be optimistic there's a sense i mean there's a very tangible sense that we clearly are all in this together that's starting to be, it's interesting how quickly the rhetoric has changed. I was just reading today. I don't know why I saw this, but, um, the head of JP Morgan Chase, I guess his last name is Diamond, uh, which seems a little long to me, <laughs> frankly, but, uh, <laughs> be that D-I-M-O-N-D, but still, um, you know, it's a little, little, little too exact. Um, had suddenly started to sound like, you know, uh, uh, Trotsky, um, you know, that we're all in this together and we need to pull through and we need to find a way to get together. And, uh, you know, and, and, and all, I, you know, you know, he practically was, you know, drifting into from each according to his needs and, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his Good. needs. 
Um, yeah. I don't buy it, but it was, but, but the rhetoric has very quickly changed, obviously. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And not only within this country, but across the world. Yeah. The, so, the, um, so there can be good things that could, could come out of this kind of catastrophe. Oh, I hope so. The, I want to go back a bit to the question about from the viewer or viewer or listener of Zoomer about, um, about the poetry of Exodus. And maybe I'll just read this. And I do think this is a question for both. It's addressed to me, but I think it's a question for both of us because I don't have the language. Um, you know, I don't know the original language of this text, um, that it was written in. So, um, would you be comfortable as a poet commenting on the language, the poetry of Exodus? Could you point us to certain places where you find the language is up to the task, where it can encompass catastrophe and tragedy, and perhaps places where it is overwhelmed, where a catastrophe slips away from the story and out of the poet's grasp? Ooh, that's the, that's a very poetical question, I think. <laughs> Did anything jump to mind? Well, there's, in terms of the literary style, most of the Exodus story is prose, but it's a very poetic kind of prose. It's a very terse literary style. And one of the ways that uh, the writers create different kinds of poetic effects, uh, semantic, semantic effects, dramatic effects, is by the repetition of certain words. And there are certain words that are repeated in slightly different ways in certain sequences uh, which creates a kind of underlying poetic repetition uh, within mm-hmm. the prose. So there are, um, you know, the repetition of the, of the heaviness of Pharaoh's heart, the repetition of Moses as one who saves people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he saves people at various points. For example, when Moses flees uh, to the land of Midian, uh, the, he comes across a well with these Midianite, daughters of the local priest uh, congregating around the well and they're being oppressed by shepherds uh, and Moses saves them Mm -hmm. he says who who is this savior who came to get us blah 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 and he saved us against Egyptians so there are subtle little links there just by the repetition of words verbs, uh, personages relationships uh, that create a kind of artistic undertone uh, within the story that's very effective and also very subtle. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. The other thing is that there are some poems uh, in mm. the Exodus story. In Exodus 15, right right when the people are crossing the Red Sea, there's this beautiful yeah. poem that's called The Song of the Sea. Mm. And this occurs at a, at a moment of real crescendo. Uh, and it says that uh, Miriam and the other women of Israel went out and, and danced and played uh, tambourines and sang this song. It's a song of victory. And it's a very beautiful poetic song, which which presents in a kind of impressionistic way the crossing of the Red Sea and Yahweh's defeat of the Egyptians. It doesn't do it in sequential order, but does it in bursts of different scenes that's, that is really quite, uh, quite beautiful and quite dramatic and uses some images that harken back to older stories of where warrior gods defeated sea monsters, which in this kind of uh, multi-layered sense of the poetry casts Pharaoh and in the Egyptian army as a kind of sea monster 
that Yahweh defeats and, and uh, destroys, after which, in the traditional story, God creates the world. Mm. So there's a very cosmogonic sense where, where Yahweh's defeat of, of Pharaoh at Pharaoh's army at the sea is a kind of repetition, symbolic repetition of the, the creation of the world at the beginning out of the primeval waters mm. and in opposition to primeval watery monsters. So, well, that, so these are all things that are going on in the poetry. That idea of, poet, you know, anaphora, um, repeated structures is, is at the heart of poetry. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, 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 I often like only sort of half jokingly tell my students that um, if you want to know the secret, I'll tell you the secret of poetry. It's just keep repeating the same structure over and over again until it starts to sound mythic. Oh, good. Perfect. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and uh, some other, some other secrets too, having to do with uh, negations and questions, but, but, uh, but, but repetition is at the heart of it and um, we see it all over. And so both, both, um, anaphora, like strict anaphora, like actually repeating mm-hmm. you know, s- syntax, but then also, like you're saying, these sort of symbolic repetitions, micro versions of things that later become larger stories and echoes or whatever. That is, that is definitely a big feeling, um, in this book. Are you familiar with Whitman's, um, short piece, uh, The Bible is Poetry? Oh, no, I'm not. Uh, it's, um, it's remarkable. It's a remarkable piece of writing. It's it's in uh, um, November Bows, which was kind of one of his later collections of prose, and um, it's a really interesting uh, piece of writing because it's a, a lot of it's about trying to talk about the poetry of of, of the Bible, um, what makes it feel poetic to people, and also how important it is to nation formation. Oh, I got to read that. Yeah, he says that, um, he says, uh, about, um, it that, um, basically that, you know, it's so bound up in our American life that it's more than any one thing else. This is the quote more than any one thing else. It has been the axis of civilization and history throughout thousands of years and except for which this America of ours with its polity and essentials could not now be existing. So he's making an argument that, that, that there's something about the very consciousness of the, of the old Testament, the Bible that is, you know, that's, that's, that's inherent to our political life. Um, and there's a lot of sort of uh, uh, explanations of that in the essay, but it's, it's, a, it's a, I don't know, maybe think I was, just, I was sort of paging through this, this, I have this, um, you know, the Whitman, uh, whatever the library mm-hmm. Whitman, and I was sort of looking through, and and I saw, I noticed that title, and I thought, huh, this is maybe pertinent to our discussion. And I was just reading it the other day. That's great. Well, one of the wonderful things about Whitman is that uh, he kind of exemplifies how the Bible becomes an American kind of tale in his prosodic style. Mm-hmm. In yeah. this, right. in this yeah. uh, blank verse, is that what you call it? Yeah, well, it's not even blank verse because it's you know blank verse strictly speaking would be uh, would be you know have a have a metrical component. Oh. So he's he's free verse. I mean, Whitman free, free really wrote the first free verse. I mean, his eighteen fifty five. Yeah. I mean, it, free verse had been written in other languages, you know, like a prose poems or whatever that is in French. But in 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 Whitman's you know eighteen fifty five leaves appearance of leaves of grass was you know brought 
um, free verse, you know, suddenly and kind of radically to, to the, to the, um, not just American literature, but world literature. And it, you know, never looked So, you know, you know, you know where he got the idea? One of my graduate students taught this to me. Uh The, The King James Bible the prose is written verse by verse mm-hmm. and you can read it as a kind of prose poetry. Well, it's really, you really hear that echo for sure. And the yeah. question about the poetry of it, I mean, reading the King James Bible is so, you just realize how much rhetoric, how, how much style is, is absorbed yeah. from that. And, and that goes for a lot of poetry too. Kind of like you had said earlier, this, terseness and a kind of like mm-hmm. directness of, mm-hmm. of style that is that feels very weirdly american actually i think american. i think it feels very american and that's an that's an, made it american right it's an, an super anach- anachronistic and weird thing to say to call it american the king james bible but it but because of whitman and others yeah. it is for yeah. sure and of course you know the other pillar of uh, american literature dickinson um you yes. know, was a was a deep scholar and deeply knowledgeable about the Bible too. So 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 you know that's and um, although she was Episcopalian, so the Common Book of Prayer would have been more her her uh, her wheelhouse as it were. She she has some she has a beautiful poem about Moses mm. about how sad. In fact, back on our negative capability, she has a beautiful poem about how sad it is that Moses didn't get to go into the Promised Land. It is she, sad. So she makes beautiful poetic, yeah, American poetic verse out of uh, a number of biblical stories. Well, we got another question, which is definitely out of my out of my league, but probably I'm um, almost assuredly not out of yours. Um, which is, have you read the story of Moses in the Quran? And if so, can you comment on it and its differences? I have not read that story, but uh, in the Quran, Moses is Musa. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure that I know of places where it differs from the biblical story. I think most of the stories about Musa, um, map pretty, pretty, pretty straightforwardly onto the biblical story. But Muhammad knew the, the Bible. There were, there were a lot of Jews in uh, Mecca and in, in Saudi Arabia at the time. Uh, so he knew the Bible very well. So there's all sorts of snippets of st- parts of the story of Musa, of, of um, Adam, of Joseph, of an, a lot of other biblical characters. But I don't know that there's something that is in some ways uh, askance of, of the biblical story of Musa. Yeah. But well, he's one of the great prophets. And mm-hmm. so he's placed in the series of, you know, from Musa, to Issa, which is Jesus, to Muhammad. Um, I want to come back a little bit to our contemporary moment, and maybe some more questions will come in. But um, I'm I, I'm I'm want to come back and just maybe open up a little bit whether or not this text has much to um, help us um, with in our current situation. Um, whether it has to do with how we understand leadership or how we understand unity or how we understand commitment or suffering. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure it has many things to offer. I think about this line from Rilke. Um, I only know it in translation. Uh, 
there is one winter so endlessly winter that only by win- that only by wintering through it can our hearts survive. Hmm. And I think about that a lot in our current situation. You know, we're 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 oh, somehow only by wintering through this winter, mm-hmm. <laughs> somehow by suffering through this suffering will we survive. And I think about that with the, you know, a almost casual way that lengths of time are, are, are mentioned in, 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 um, in Exodus, you know, 40 years here and 40 days there. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and is there something to be learned or taken away from the way that for better and for worse, the people that these people dealt with this unprecedented, situation where they did not know when the end would be. We know that there's an end, but they were wandering around not knowing anything. That's true. If you're wandering, if you're wandering in the desert for 40 years, that's a long time. That's a long time. And, and they didn't know that there, I mean, they were told that there was going to be an end in the same way they were told there's going to be an end to this, this, but, you know, but, but sure we can be told, but that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, yeah, well, this is where it's, this is where Exodus is a story of how hard it is in some ways to, uh, you know, survive disaster, to make, and make your way back to normalcy. Mm-hmm. It's not an easy thing to do and that it's hard and people want to just give up. In the, in the story, the Israelites are all saying, Oh, why are you making us do this? Let's go back and be slaves in Egypt. At least there we get to have our leeks and our garlic. Now I can't even find garlic at the store anymore. Yeah, the, the original Kvetchers, those those. They're, two. They're ex- exactly. There's a whole series of stories that I call the stories of Kvetching. Yeah, they're Kvetching. And this is where their Moses kind of pushes them through. He's sort of like, I'm not sure this is a good analogy, but he's sort of like Tony Fauci, you know, telling <laughs> us you have to separate, you have to stay home. It's good for you, even if you don't want to, even if you want to go out and do stuff. You have to do this for the for the greater good. What an inverse, right? Don't don't wander the desert. Don't don't yeah. go from your homes. Don't exactly. don't you know? Don't don't uh, don't don't get all together and and go out. You know, across. But we want to go back and have the kind of life that we had in Egypt. You know, where at least you could get good meals and garlic sure. and stew and the flesh pots of Egypt. Sure, sure. The the world is getting hotter by the moment, and sure there's massive income inequality and systematic racism, but at least we could go to the movies. Exactly. Um, so, you know, so that the, the, yeah. So you need someone to, so when you're kvetching, you need someone to kvetch back at you and tell you to behave. I mean, that's, that's one of the small lessons. And also there was a sense of the whole, like, again, I come back to the fact that the whole situation was forced in a way, you know, by, by God and by Moses. I mean, they didn't have to, you know, I mean, the situation was becoming gradually more intolerable, but it was sort of the frog in the boiling water story, you know, that they didn't, this could have gone on presumably for a longer time. The Israelites could have stayed in Egypt and been slaves and it would have sucked, but at least they wouldn't have been wandering around the desert. But th- there was a, f- a force to a crisis in a way, in the same way that we're being forced to it now out of, by factors outside our control, right? And then, then what happens? You know. Yeah. Well, it's it's not easy. Once once you make it to the promised land, things are not so easy either. So What's it's, the it's, one of the golden calf in our current situation? I don't want to put you in a complicated situ- complicated place po- politically, but uh, but what you know, but what uh, <laughs> what's the well, when what when I mean, I'm just riffing here. But when they, when people say there's an easy cure, an easy solution, right. 
you know, don't stay the course, just do, you know, whatever Trump has on his mind that day. That's a cop out. Or it's just a seasonal flu. You're not going to, yeah, you just, it's just going to go away. We can ignore it. You know, these are, these are, these are, um, Golden calves. These are false ideals. I'm going to ask you lure you away from the hard path. I want to ask you another dangerous question, and you can definitely take a pass on this if you want. But um, it strikes me as deeply ironic that some of the people who are most vocally presenting these golden calf type ideas are are most are are figures of religious. Uh, Christian, uh, religious leaders. Not all of them, of course. I don't, I mean, there are many, 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 the vast majority of Christian religious leaders are, are staying, saying stay home and wash your hands. But, but some of the most vocal people are, 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 have, and, and you would think that they would maybe make a connection, but maybe they're making a different connection. I don't know. Well, as you, as you remarked earlier, these are, these the, the, these are the errands of the story. The people who can't stay the course and who immediately swerve and take the easy path and give the people what what they think the people want. But they're hucksters. They're fakes. Uh, and uh, you know, ultimately, they're showing up for it as as Aaron is. Mm-hmm. So, like you know, Jerry Falwell Jr. All of these people, they're just fake hucksters who are who are selling golden cabs to people. I mean, this time of reading the story was so interesting because I thought about how subtle it is that, you know, Mo- Moses sort of more or less not forces God, but basically, you know, keeps whining until God lets Aaron do the talking and God doesn't want to do it. And it turns out that Aaron wasn't so great after all, you know, like down the road. And it takes a while. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it takes a while for that to come out. You know, it's not it's there's a narrative patience there. Where it's not like yeah. that, 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 you know, and there's no gloating in the text either. Well, I God, think you're perfectly going to come down and say, by the way, I told you that that guy, you know, you should have done it on your own. You know? But I think your point is a good one. There's, there's character development for Moses. And so by that time of the story, he's not intimidated anymore. He has his own voice. He's able to criticize Aaron and he's able to criticize God. So he's really the one that stays the course. Uh, yeah, so so in a sense, he, he eclipses Aaron in that respect, which is part of his upward uh, ascent of of the solidification of his character and of his his drive and his desire to see this thing through. So I have um, an, I, I want to take advantage of your presence. Um, we have a few more minutes left, and I want to just um, ask you about a few things that I'm rereading totally mystified me. Um, would you Would you mind undergoing a quick round of uh, of of, of uh, Stump the stump the professor of, of uh, biblical. Are these yes? Are these yes or no questions? Oh no, they're they're just like uh, what the hell is going on? Questions. Um, okay. The first question is: What is the deal with these magicians, Pharaoh's magicians? Like uh-huh. who? So 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 Moses shows up and does his miracles, and then what? The magicians can also do them somehow. Like how? Like, well, like what is what is their deal? And what's well, the, for the first for that? Well, this is this is also part of this kind of upward ascent of of Moses and of the dramatic movement of the story. For the first, I think, three plagues, yeah. the Egyptians can do it too. Yeah, right. That was a bit of a twist. I'd forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like well, that. Th- this is this is part of the 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 narrative quality of it. I mean, it's a great story. 
and it builds in various ways. And so at first, Pharaoh, he's not afraid of these people. He's not intimidated. Right. He's got people who can do magic too. And in, in Egypt, you know, if you go to Cairo, you'll see people doing, you know, flute dances and the cobra comes up. And there are all sorts of magicians in the, in the Near East, in the Middle East to, to this day. So Egypt was known for having this magical quality. There's also Egyptian inscriptions, the Book of the Dead, and so forth. So they had quality magicians. I so they, could really up, great. they could keep up for the first three, but then they get blown away. I know it wasn't supposed to be funny, probably, but I found it a little bit funny. Oh, but, it is a little funny. They kept up with them for a bit. You know, they were like... It's, Definitely funny when I when when Moses takes out his staff and it turns into a, a snake, and the Egyptian magicians do exactly the same thing, and then Moses' snake eats their snake. Right. I think that's that's vaudeville. High comedy. It, it yeah. really is funny. And so let me say, much- let me say in the translations, it's a snake. The word that's used could also mean crocodile. Oh. Which makes it an, an even more impressive trick. And with if his crocodile eats the other guy's crocodile that that's even a little more dramatic and we were talking about um when we met together about the in the in the in my um torah portion the the beginning of exodus book four about how um that's the that's the section where again where moses after the burning bush where moses says they're not going to believe me if pharaoh's not going to believe me and then you know put your put your hand in your you know and pull it out and it's leprous or throw your staff on the ground it's a snake and i was i always thought that that was basically what that is, is it's metaphor, right? It's, 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 I will give you the gift of transforming one thing into another or connecting, connecting two things. And that's a kind of, that's a kind of poetical magic. That's basic poetical. Oh, magic. good. Oh, I like that. That's very good. Um, you know, this is, this is Ovid, Ovid's mm, uh, metamorphosing or, or Aristotle's yeah. notion that uh, poets have an eye for resemblances that can see things being alike that other people can't see. And then they make mm. them alike and then everybody can see it. That's basically what Moses is doing. He said, my staff is like a snake mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I will show you it's like that. And so it's, that's deep poetical magic. Mm. But so he's able to, he's able to actualize a metaphor. Yeah, what I asked you in, 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 in when we talked it was, you know, who's the poet there? Is it God or is it Moses or, you know, like, like who's, like who's actually performing that miracle? I mean, it's, it's, to me, Moses seems like, I'll answer my own question to say that to me, Moses seems like the quintessential poet, the true poet who doubts, who doubts his own power. Um, oh. You know, that, 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 that most, almost all poets I know are, are carrying around a great deal of doubt. Both about mm-hmm. their vocation, mm-hmm. about its worth, about its usefulness, about its effectiveness, and and Moses' dilemma: I am going to perform this miracle or this set of miracles, and still they're not going to believe me. I'm going to make metaphor, and they won't believe okay. me. Mm-hmm. Is was is felt to me so close to what so many poets fear. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and hope for both in, in their own, you know, in their own work. And it's just the fact that it is really struck me as metaphor. What they're doing, what, mm. what they're doing, what they're, what God and Moses together performing is metaphor was so That's very nice. There's a deep kind of wisdom there. And I've never really been able to do anything with that observation other than share it with you now. But well, let me, let me add a couple nuances to it. Please. 
I, I think he, I think that's, that's very perceptive. And I think that really is going on. Uh, and certainly Moses's self doubt is a, is a major theme of, of that chapter. But I would say that it's not only a doubt in terms of communication, in terms of making X into Y. It's also a doubt that goes along with being any kind of leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, it goes along with being a prophet. Prophets are, you know, people who tell people what's going to happen. And then in Moses's case, he tries, he makes it happen. But being a prophet is a very difficult thing. And there's moment, tremendous moments of doubt uh, for many of the biblical prophets. He's also a legislator. So he's creating this nation. He's giving them the laws. But there's also doubt as to whether these are, you know, wise laws. And, so and as an aside, he kind of invents not exactly representative democracy, but at least um, representative government, you know, sort of an aside. His, his uh, what is it, his father-in-law tells him that it's too much work mm-hmm. for him to... Mm-hmm. To, to do all this himself, so he better appoint some representatives to do it, and so he, he does that. Or, he appoints representatives, but it's and, he, and here's another way that the biblical story kind of blends into the American story. In the early modern period, political theorists who were starting to argue for democracy as over against kingship as a, the right kind of government, they took the example of Moses going to the people. Mm-hmm. And saying, "Do you accept the laws of Yahweh?" And so, and so, this this goes back to something you said before. Yahweh doesn't just give the laws, but through Moses, he asks the people if they're willing to accept them. This is in Exodus uh, chapter nineteen and chapter twenty-four, mm-hmm. and the people says, "Yes, what Yahweh has commanded us, we will do." Mm-hmm. And people took that in the early modern period as a warrant for democracy. Like literally a warrant, like like like. Yes. I give you the I give you this power I, above my own free will. Literally a warrant that the biblical covenant that they say yeah. we yes we agree to enter into this covenant. You will be our God. We will be your people, and we will follow your laws. This was transformed by people like uh, Thomas Hobbes and, and John Locke into the idea of a social contract. No, oh, it's amazing. That's really cool. Yeah. And they're um, and they're quoting the biblical laws. And they're quoting those passages and Moses. To, to just to circle back um, with a final observation, um, and then we will we will have well, one one. You know, I'd love to hear a final comment from you. But um, maybe the big one of the biggest lessons that everybody can learn from this story about and really getting back into Moses as a figure is that a great leader really does have doubt in his heart. And we should probably be uh, quite suspicious of anyone from any side of the political spectrum who who exudes certainty. Um, it's 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 um, critique that what I just said because when one is in a desperate time and a dire time, what we do need is someone with great certainty and great conviction. Mm-hmm. But the true example of negative capability would be to have that kind of certainty and conviction and also have doubt and humility. That would be, that would be a truly, truly great, great leader and a great individual. I don't know if we have a person like that in our lives right now. Um, I, maybe we do. <laughs> um, we, we just don't know it, but, or maybe we know it. I don't know, but I, I'm, I, that, you know, we, we could use it. We could use a good Moses right around now, I think. Well, let, let me say that that really hits the 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 um, 
the essence of what Moses is. He's a great leader, but he's also racked with doubt and he has this character development and he has this tragic final moment where he doesn't actually achieve what he wanted to achieve, but the people achieve it on his behalf and he dies. This is also taken up into the New Testament in the person of, in the character and character development of Jesus Mm -hmm. on the verge of his final appointment in the garden of Gethsemane. He's, he has doubt also. Take this cup from me, father. Take this cup from me, father. And so this is, this is his Moses moment, his moment of mosaic doubt. Yeah. And going through that moment of doubt in this, um, kind of dark night of the soul that he experiences at the garden of Gethsemane is what enables him to be a more full hero, a full character and, and a kind of salvific hero, just as Moses is in the, in the moment of his death, just as Moses is again. So I, I would, I would say since this is the week, not only of Passover, but also of Easter. Right. And because, and because the last supper was Jesus's Seder. Mm-hmm. tying these different uh, leaders and heroes and ideals together that to be a great figure is to have doubt and to go and to work through that instead of uh, being completely confident that everything you say is, is by definition correct. Mm-hmm. This is very foreign to, to Moses and Jesus. Yeah. It's not, unfortunately not too foreign to our current leadership. I know. That's the tragedy. That's the tragedy of our situation. Yeah, well, I suppose that almost any political situation is going to have that conflict between people who are behaving that way and somebody else. Uh, I mean, I'm hoping that, yeah, like I said, I'm hoping there's another another model, another figure, um, but we, it remains to be seen. Um, thank you so much, Ron. Um, you know, I want to just, I think we should all, in our private spaces, in our socially distanced private spaces, you know, be very thankful to you for um, joining us and being here for this virtually for this Commonwealth club program. Um, And as I said earlier, you know, this is the first in a series of programs between the Commonwealth club and the Townsend center for the humanities. Um, You can go to commonwealthclub.org to learn more. Um, It's going to be a great series of speakers talking about things that really matter through the lens of storytelling literature. and, And I'm very excited to, be a viewer of them. Um, and so, you know, I want to thank you all again. My name is Matthew Zapruder, and I would say that this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you are in the know, is now adjourned. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks, Ron. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.